You're listening to the Keep Going Student Nurse podcast on keepgoingstudentnurse.com. Hello, my name is Gina D'Andrea, I'm your host. I am a student nurse and creator of Keep Going Student Nurse, an online motivational tool for student nurses and now a podcast. Yes, a very big welcome to you all. Come on in, grab yourself a drink, put the revision down. This is a time for you to relax, get inspired. This is the Keep Going Student Nurse podcast. This is a show that's designed to shine light on the good things that often get overlooked in nursing. Each week I'm going to be talking to someone in or around the world of nursing, gaining an insight into what they do and why, rounding off the show with my quote of the week. This week, before we get going, I just wanted to share some great news with you. Last year, as a first year student nurse, I attended my first ever nursing conference. It was the Nursing Times Careers Live in London. I met some great people, including Jackie Smith, Chief Executive of the NMC, Jenny Middleton, Editor of the Nursing Times, and some phenomenal nurses and students at every stage of their nursing journey. So one year ago, I set myself a goal, and that goal was to one day be a speaker at that conference at some point in my career. I will have achieved that goal in less than a year's time come June the 30th. I'm absolutely honoured to have been invited to speak at such a prestigious event and I'm really looking forward to it. So we're going to rejoin the conversation now with Kenny Gibson. We're talking about vaccinations, we're talking about population health. But one thing that Kenny said that really struck me was the fact that in London this year, no one died of influenza A and yet it's not been in the news. That's why it's so important that these positive stories are told in nursing and that is everything that Keep Going Student Nurse stands for. I really hope you enjoy. So I'm, I'm London's head of vaccinations as part of my public health role. My team uh, commission £106 million worth of vaccines. And uh, I've always, no matter which job I've done, I've always been a vaccinator. So uh, even, even back in the mental health unit when, when I was a staff nurse, I vaccinated. I'm, I come from Scotland where everyone is is invariably fully vaccinated. We, we are proud of our vaccination record up in Scotland. I've always uh, vaccinated. And um, when I took up the job of head of vaccinations, I, I told my appointing officer I would be a clinician. And so I've kept my patient group directions up. Every year I set my seven patient group directions uh, using e-learning modules. And uh, I'm a firm believer that uh, if you see system leaders or celebrities, um, so you'll see the mayor of London being vaccinated by me, I think celebrity and um, the, the system leaders, once, they, once the population staff see them being vaccinated, it is a very powerful message. And so I deliberately go out of my way to get as many uh, vaccination uh, tweets onto Twitter, particularly around flu, but also uh, meningitis B deaths. When there's a death, we go out and make sure that we get meningitis HCWI vaccines profiled. Um, so it's back to this, the power of an image, the power of, of a vaccination. So for the last five years, I vaccinated the chief nurse, Jane Cummings. For the last Four years, I vaccinated um, Sadiq Khan, the the mayor, and um, other dignitaries or whatever you'd want to call them, come flocking at our doors. Um, and I think I, I wouldn't say it's everything, but seeing them vaccinated this year, we have more healthcare workers vaccinating than ever before. 
Um, and I'm sure it's the rise of public profiled individuals saying these vaccines are safe. And it, it all adds to that social movement that we get using uh, social media. Um, you can see how powerful it is politically, but you can also use it for population health. So yes, um, it only takes a few hours a week out of my day job, but it has massive, massive dividends uh, in terms of inspiring uh, student nurses. Every year I, I give a talk to the Kingston University nursing students because I did my return to practice there and it gave me my nursing mojo back. And I said to them, okay, I will come once a year and I will talk to third-year students qualifying. And uh, every year we go there and every year we offer them the free influenza vaccine uh, at the London pharmacies. So, you know, it's something I, I believe passionately about and... I believe in, in getting the sort of social media, the social movement going via things like that. And most people are very generous and have their photographs taken these days. My second placement I had was at a GP surgery and there were several flu clinics that we ran. My mentor yeah. was very good telling me that vaccines are the single most important intervention we can have with children especially to protect them. The World Health Organization 2009. Wow, look at that. That is proficient knowledge from an expert. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're slightly different. What they said was, apart from wholesome drinking water, vaccines were, were the most important uh, intervention you could give any global child. Um, August 2009 World Health Organization. Look at that. So if you want to reference <laughs> that in your essay... <laughs> absolutely it's there. absolutely that is fantastic knowledge <laughs> but she did tell me that and uh that there was a big drive on to get more parents bring their children in and um yeah it seemed to work and it was also again a drive on social media on the on the gp surgery's website i think people do take note of these things now and the old myths are, do you find this slowly becoming to be dispelled you know oh it will give me the flu i had it once it made me worse yes I, well old myths will ever be perpetuated by uh, bad science so uh, you know vaccine social media can be used to tout bad science as well as effective science. And yes, I mean, we're, we're, we're getting more creative at uh, doing, getting rid of myths. Um, there's the flu B game, uh, which is social media. Um, the, but I, I think what's happened, like, like all population, what we know about population health is that whilst you as a practitioner, you can change someone's heart and mind on a ward within three meetings. So, you know, you tell them something, you repeat it, and uh, you tell them again. That will make them concord with a care plan or a treatment plan. So as, as individual human beings, once we hear a message three times, we tend to uh, try it, do it, and uh, learn it, sort of model. Population health takes longer. And what we know about population health, shifting hearts and minds, takes about five to ten years. And there has been a social movement um, after the MMR scare, the Wakefield mm. scare. You know, parents didn't trust vaccines. 
Uh, but slowly and surely, over the last 12 months, we've inspired confidence that we're, we're not jabbing you for jabbing's sake, but if we don't jab 85% of children, a few children will die. And um, this is some of the, the things that you have got to balance your communication with. You know, it's, a, it's no different to when Jade Goody had cancer. She used that moment so compassionately, and Kate Granger used her cancer so compassionately to shift hearts and minds to talk about cancer and to talk about cervical uh, cancer. For vaccines, we do the same thing. There's no good news story about vaccines and flu particularly because we prevent things. But what you do have to do is very carefully and uh, you have to be compassionate, but you choose the, the horrible, horrible situations of uh, young, old people dying of certain diseases that are vaccine preventable because that's the only benefit you can profile. The fact that in London, no one has died this year from influenza A, it's the first year in, in my memory that no one, not a single adult has died of influenza A is down in no large part to the fact that we vaccinated, but we don't celebrate it. Um, sadly, we have had two flu B deaths uh, of children and young, one, one child, one young person in England. But in London, no one died of influenza A this year. And yet, where is it in the mm. press? Because it's, it's, not, it's not a fabulous, dramatic story. No one dying isn't a fabulous story. Absolutely. So... Uh, in, in population uh, in population health terms, what we've what we've had to learn to do is say, look, last year, well, three years ago, two pregnant women died, and so go and get your pertussis and pregnancy vaccine. So we've had to use it in a in a careful, considered, compassionate way to say horrible situations happen if you don't vaccinate mm -hmm. yourself. And that's, that's a challenge with vaccines because no one sees the benefits, but the commissioners, the clinicians need to seize on the horrible moments and uh, change society, change hearts and minds. It's a different way to work. It's not a care plan. It's, it's it getting crowds of people to explore the consequences of not doing something. I guess on a one-to-one -one basis, it's the whole ethos of, you know, making every contact count. But then in terms of a population, it's significantly harder because how do you address all of those people get the messages across? Yes, because we, we, know, we know that uh, about 2.7% of families are vaccine-resistant. That's fine. Let, let them be vaccine resistant. It's still 96.3%. 97.3% of farmers could be uh, uh, vaccination compliant. Um, so we, we've stopped worrying about the families that are truly, ethically, morally, 
a value-based system res- resistant. If they don't want to vaccinate, I'm not going to. I'm not going to persuade them to do so. But more so, we have got to tackle the 40% of families that hmm, I'm I, I'm worried about it. So we have to give them messages around the benefits and at times the consequences of not. And that's where we've changed our narrative. We we've gone and we've changed the narrative. Influenza A kills. Influenza A kills. But also we have we have to be honest about influenza in the wider community. You know, you'll have read my blog, Saturday is Saturday, no, January is January. Yes. Uh, whereby for the last 15 years, we see the rise of influenza virus in London, in England, about the middle of December. And then suddenly it's getting confused and conflated with norovirus in the wards as people eat leftover Christmas lunches or rice salad without preparing it properly. Because influenza A, and then influenza A reaches its peak as a disease uh, about middle of January. And then a second wave of influenza called B hits in February. Now, that is scientifically proven, um, and yet no one takes account of it that, you know, you need your flu vaccine the 14 days before December. <laughs> you know, we, we, should be, we should be very explicit about this. And that the, up until now, the flu vaccine does not contain flu B because adults don't die from flu B. It does, flu B does kill children. So we, we're, we're into this, we're into this sort of science-making statements because we've got 10 to 15 years of evidence and science and modeling that says let's worry about flu b for children and influenza a we do need to get people vaccinated before the first of december and so the the you as a nurse as a practitioner you look at that science and you try and cut messages that are not dramatic, but honest. You know, it's, 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 it's a fabulous science to get involved in population health and prevention tactics. It's, it's, it is very, very uh, satisfying to get into mass data uh, and make the most of it from a clinical evidence point of view. Oh, definitely. I'm, I'm right in the middle of my uh, public health module at university yeah it's the first kind of input we've had and i'm in the second year and i was just going to ask as a student how can we expand our knowledge like on these issues in this area i mean there's some fabulous resources on public health england's website called fingertips fingertips is the latest um population indicators and data by borough and um, so fingertips data, I would say, are fantastic. Cochrane does now contain a lot of valid evidence. Um, but you know something? The best way to learn public health or population health or prevention health is get your university to bring in 
a jobbing consultant or a jobbing um, population health practitioner to talk through the theories, the theories of population health. They, they'll, they'll all take they'll all take several weeks to understand and at least 10 to 15 years to come to fruition. And so they can be quite conceptual. But listening to a health protection officer or listening to a public health commissioner about the benefits that you can make within 12 months of changing a process, it's really quite profound. Um, by listening to a culture group, by, by working with lived experience and how to influence cognitive change or behavioural change over a period of a year or so is really quite enlightening. Um, and I don't think enough universities actually bring in nurses who are public health specialists onto the course as honorary lecturers um, lifting it from the book and presenting it as a, a, a sort of theoretical construct, it is quite difficult to grasp how you influence populations. But my advice is students should be using Public Health England fingertips for the, for the data and then being mentored by or shadowing or listening to a, a full range of people, everyone from public health protection to uh, environmental health to, did you know that in England we have six nurses that specialise in nothing but rabies? No. Rabies prevention. I know. I mean, it is fabulous listening to these. Um, and what we're trying to encourage under lead to add or leading change adding value is obviously the first three commitments, health prevention, health protection, and health promotion. We're trying to encourage people to collect case studies that might inspire every nurse, every practitioner, and every carer to think that any day they're dealing with health protection, health promotion. Hand washing. Let's, hand washing is the fundamental health protection thing that we all do copious times a day because it prevents the spread of bacteria, prevents the spread of viruses, or even something as, as fundamental as learning to be an antibiotic guardian, so antimicrobial stewardship, um, learning how not to, how to persuade patients you don't need antibiotics, you have a virus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, care, care homes and elderly, we can stop gram-negative urinary tract infections by encouraging hydration and fluids. So every one of us, every day, performs health prevention, illness prevention and health protection. We just don't profile it as such. And I think universities not only need to look at making every contact count for that, but we need, we need to embolden nurses to think they're a health protection specialist every day by doing these activities or getting their carers or clients to do it, you know. And those are the two examples off the top of my head, hand washing and antimicrobial uh, stewardship or anti being an antibiotic guardian. So effective. You know, we even teach this in school, you know. In school, we have antibiotic guardian, junior, uh, or it's called e-bug, 
website. And because we've learned that if we teach children and young people, 70, 11, up to 15, they will come out being health protection savvy. Mm. Um, so we've got it in mainstream education, the concept of train and mentor and coach. We perhaps need to have it more embedded as a larger module, a, a greater sort of evidence base or more mentoring and coaching in health protection teams. I mean, this, I'm, I'm just thinking, this is the first year I've heard of any student being attached into a health protection team. There's one of the students on Twitter that I'm currently mentoring. And uh, that gentleman has a placement in the TB outreach team. Now, that's the first time I've heard of a nursing student actually having a full placement in a health protection type arena. So hopefully that will grow and flourish because you're certainly in every ward, in every care home, in every placement, I can guarantee you I could watch you and pinpoint at least 10 or 12 things you do every day as a population health protection person. Uh, you just don't call it that. <laughs> you call it... Nursing. Yeah, you call it nursing. You, and this is why nurses make brilliant uh, non-nursing posts. Because we've got this mindset of protecting people and populations. It's at the heart of what we do, whether it's safeguarding or physical. We, we are there to protect them and avoid things happening, avoid diseases, avoid illnesses. It's at the core of what we do. Thank you so much for your time. I've just seen we've been talking over an hour now. Not at all. I think we'll probably call it a day there. And you're absolutely an inspirational role model, not only for men in nursing, but for everyone. Thank for, you. For, for me, I think it's so good to see what you're doing. And thank you so much for your time and giving us an insight. Take care. Bye. Well, there we have it. Thank you so much to Kenny Gibson for coming on the show once again. It really is so inspirational to hear your story and all of your expertise. Next week, we're going to be speaking to... Actually, no, it's a secret, but... I've been speaking to a nurse in California, I've been speaking to a nurse in Australia, I've been speaking to a nurse as the author of a brand new book that's going to be out soon that's going to be helping newly qualified nurses from graduation all the way to revalidation. Lots and lots of cool stuff. Please do stay tuned. Quote of the week this week comes from a student nurse in Hampshire. Your worst day at placement can be 100 times worse than a bad day in any other job. But your best day at placement is 100 times better than any day in any other job. I couldn't agree more. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at STN underscore Gino. Make sure you follow the show and keep going. STN.